Okay, if I could uh, get your attention, we'll get started today. We're studying the Gospel of Luke, as you no doubt know, and this is the eighth lesson out of a series of ten. So after today, there'll be two more lessons. Uh, and help me to remember, but the tenth lesson will actually be downstairs where we meet sometimes, and I'll try to remember to send that email. Uh, but uh, you might want to write that down someplace. So we are today in Luke chapter 19. We come to the end of what's called the travel log and, uh, in Luke's gospel in which Jesus is traveling from the farthest northern point, Caesarea Philippi, all the way down to Jerusalem. And of course, he knows when he gets to Jerusalem what awaits him, the cross. And so he has been teaching all the way down there about what's going to happen in, in Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested and crucified and then resurrected. And all along the way, we continuously see that the disciples just don't get it. Initially, Peter had even said, no, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus said, it's got to happen. So he actually said, if you don't want my my crucifixion to happen then basically there's going to be no redemption of mankind so that's what Satan wants so that's where Jesus actually said to Peter get behind me Satan and so we see that through this whole almost a year of teaching on the way to Jerusalem that the disciples are completely uh, clueless kind of like uh, uh, Ralph and Ed Norton <laughs> All right, so in Luke 19, there's uh, the verse, first 10 verses. There's uh, kind of a unique, strange story. We, we, we find it here only in Luke. Uh, this guy's got a funny name, Zacchaeus, and he's a little bitty guy. And I was looking at uh, some jokes about, about this guy, and I saw that the story goes that the world's strongest man issued a challenge to anyone who would take it. The world's strongest man squeezed a lemon until all the juice ran out of the lemon. And then he challenged anybody. He says, anybody that can get even another drop out of this lemon, I'll give them $1,000. And so everybody lined up, strong, big football players, weightlifters, and they could not get another drop out of the lemon. Finally, this little skinny guy, looked like Don Knott, steps up takes the lemon and easily squeezes six drops of lemon juice out of the deal. And everyone yells, wow, what are you, a lumberjack, a weightlifter, or what? He says, uh, I work for the IRS. <laughs> and so did Zacchaeus. That's why nobody likes this guy, right? And so you see the story, uh, Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus, Jericho's only about 15 miles from Jerusalem, so he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he uh, is northeast. He comes down the road, the Jordan River Road there, and to get to Jerusalem, you go through Jericho. And so uh, he entered and was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was very rich. Now, you already know this, but I'll tell you again. 
in Israel in the first century, they were the most loathed people in society, the, the tax collectors. And this guy was not just a tax collector. He was the chief. He was the head of all the others. And so all the tax gatherers, all the tax collectors were crooks. So you can imagine how big a crook the chief guy was, right? And so everybody hated this guy. Everybody knew him. He was notorious. And he was, but here's this guy out there. What's he doing out there? He's heard about Jesus. He's heard that he's a special person, that he might be the Messiah. And I take it that, like all of us, like all people, Zacchaeus has a, a hole in his heart that nothing else could fill. All the riches, all the stuff he thought he needed and wanted that he's gotten, that had not filled that hole. And so he is searching. And he goes out there to see this guy that everybody, all these crowds are gathering to see. And he's trying to see who Jesus is. He's, he's got a, a couple of problems. One, the crowds were heavy. He couldn't get anywhere near him. And number two, he's a short little guy. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say exactly how short, but he must have been pretty short. And trying to see who Jesus was, and he got the idea, well, I'll run way ahead. I'll, he's going to come down this road, and I'll run down there, and I'll climb a tree so I can look down as he comes by, and I'll get a look at him. And so verse 4, he says, He ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, surprise, Jesus looks up at him in the tree, and they make eye contact. And Jesus calls him by name. If you're like me, you go, well, how do you know this guy's name? Well, I find that uh, being omniscient has its advantages. You see, but clearly Jesus uh, was looking for this guy as much as he was looking for Jesus, and he knows him and calls him Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Not only does he does he invite him to come down and talk to him, but he says, "I'm coming by your house. I'm coming over to your house." And we don't get all the details, but uh, it's clear in the story that uh, Zacchaeus clearly believes that Jesus uh, is the Messiah, the Savior, and uh, in believing in him, Jesus is going to say, salvation has come to you this day. So clearly he's saved, and you can see the transformation in his life gives us all the evidence that you could need that he is saved. And so the story goes on. Zacchaeus comes down hurriedly and received him gladly, and when they... When all the people saw this, his disciples, the crowd, everybody, they know who this awful guy is. And this guy has extorted and, and he's taken bribes and he's taken, you know, stuff that wasn't his and, and just been an awful guy. And so when they see that Jesus is hanging out, made himself available with this guy, they begin to grumble and they say, wait a minute. Jesus has gone to be with the guest of a man who is a terrible sinner. This is Zacchaeus crook. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, and this, just, this is the transformation that comes from, from believing in Jesus and having him come into your life and change it. 
Behold, Lord, I, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. And when you read that, you need to realize that Jesus is talking about in a spiritual sense, not just racially a son of Abraham, but, and Paul says it great in, in Romans 9, verse 6. You might want to write that down. Paul says it's not those uh, Jews who are, who are sons of Abraham racially, but it, to be a true son of Abraham is to be one spiritually as well. So it, Paul was saying that uh, to be a true son of Abraham requires not only the racial quality, but also the faith that Abraham had in the truth that God gave him. So he too is a son of Abraham. So clearly this Zacchaeus was saved. And it's an amazing story. And you can I love to contrast it to the story just before this. Famous story. Look in chapter 18 verse 15. You've heard this story all your lives. And if you're like the rest of us, uh, it doesn't make any sense. This is that famous story about it being... Uh, easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Remember that story? And if you're like me, every time you hear it, you go, what does that mean? What is he talking about? And a lot of people take it, oh, rich people are doomed, you know. That's what it means. It doesn't mean any of that. Watch this. This rich young ruler comes out to him. Uh, and wait a minute, let me find it. Verse 18. I told you 15, I meant 18, excuse me. A certain ruler questioned Jesus, came up to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So clearly he thinks that he can accomplish something to buy this salvation, this eternal life. And so Jesus, being incredibly wise, all-knowing, he sets the guy up. Because he knows that this guy is well respected, that he's supposed to be blessed by God because he's rich. That, that's the, the uh, theology of the times, that if you were healthy and wealthy, it's because you were a good person and God had blessed you. So Jesus knows that this is what's on this guy's mind. And so he says, uh, basically, I know that you believe that you keep the law and do something in order to be saved. And so he sets him up by saying, Verse 20, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Wait a minute, those are all ten of the commandments, right? Not so fast. Jesus purposely left out the first and most important commandment because he knew that that was the weakness of this man. That is the idol of this man. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What is this man's idol? His property, his wealth, his money. Jesus knows that that's the issue. That that's his idol. If it had been somebody else with some other idol, Jesus would have said, give that up. Whatever that would, would be. But this guy, this was his problem, so Jesus says... After the guy says, oh, I've kept all those laws. And Jesus says, 
One thing you still lack, one commandment you, you are not keeping, in other words. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So give up that idol and come follow me, is what he's telling this guy. But when the man heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. So he refused to let go of his idol. You know people like this that just have a grip on, on stuff, on things, and they just can't give it up. And that's this guy. And so that's why Jesus says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is because uh, it's, it's such a distraction and it's such a delusion, really, because when you get it, you think you've got it made and you've got to keep it and it becomes a huge responsibility and it becomes very difficult to let go of. And Jesus knows that. And so that's why he says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then, for it is easy for a camera to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but that sounds impossible to me. I'm pretty sure that the largest mammal that they had there at that time in the Middle East, uh, in Jesus' time, can't go through the eye, eye of a sewing needle. Now, you've probably heard people trying to figure out what this means and go, oh, there was a gate there in Jerusalem, and they called it the needle, and you, the camels had, give me a break. That's the biggest bunch of baloney I've ever heard. No. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it's impossible. You can't do anything to be saved. Give that up. But look at the next thing he says, verse 27. After they say, then who can be saved? Jesus says, the things impossible with men are possible with God. So what we couldn't do, God is going to do for us. We couldn't be good enough or keep the law perfect enough. And so God is going to send his son into the world to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to atone for our sins. What we couldn't do, God is going to do. God did. And that's what Jesus was telling his disciples after they beheld this scene here where this guy skulked away, sad. Now compare that to the story of Zacchaeus. Look at the difference. Zacchaeus is just like this rich young ruler. They're the same guy. Their idol is their stuff, their money, their possessions. But the, look at the big difference. The, here's the contrast. Zacchaeus responded appropriately and said, I'm giving up my idol. Because look what he does. Uh, how much do you think he had left? He defrauded everybody. And so when it says, I'm going to give half of my stuff to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay him back four times. Well, he had nothing left, I can tell you, all the people he cheated. So basically, he gave away everything. 
He did what Jesus told the other guy he needed to do. Give up his idol. And so Zacchaeus, in opposition, in contrast to this other guy, Zacchaeus actually gave it up and followed Jesus. And so Jesus says, salvation has come. You're saved. And we see the transformation in this guy's life, which happens when Jesus comes into your life. Amazing. The two stories you put together, they're back-to-back in Luke's account. And they're perfectly placed. Why? Because it's just before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And what is the, the wrong thinking of the disciples? That Jesus is going there to set up the kingdom. He's not. He's going there to die on the cross. So these stories are perfect. He's going there because he's the suffering servant that's going to die on the cross to save people from their sin. What kind of people? These two guys. The people that need it. Which, of course, is all of us, everyone. But these guys are great examples of who Jesus is going to die for. One rejects, declines, and one receives. So Luke puts it in the perfect place to give us a perfect example of Jesus' saving of notorious sinners. It's a demonstration of Jesus' purpose. This is Jesus' purpose. And he gives you that purpose statement in verse 10, 1910. After the Zacchaeus story, here's the purpose statement. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What did the crowds... What what was their purpose for him? They tried to force him into a purpose of being a political military Messiah. And he wasn't. Right? The religious leaders wanted him to conform to their code and be one of them. He wasn't. Even Jesus' disciples, they wanted Jesus to conform. They wanted him to set up the kingdom immediately. But this is his purpose statement. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Sinners like Zacchaeus and, of course, you and I. Think how easy at this point, you know, we're going to get into the, the story, the Palm Sunday story with the crowds out there. Think how easy it would have been for Jesus to just say, you know, that cross deal, that's for the birds. These people are willing, they're calling me king right now. Let's just, do it. Let's just do this now, the easy way. But no, he knew God had sent him. He knew that it had to be the cross first and then later the crown. And so the next story, it just, it just flows right into a parable that Jesus tells here in Verse 11, chapter 19, verse 11. This is how we can be absolutely certain that the disciples still thought that he was getting ready to set up the kingdom. Verse 11. While they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable. And here's why. You know, all the parables were provoked by questions or something. 
Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So the disciples are going, man, this is going to be cool. Just as soon as we get to Jerusalem, he's going to set up the kingdom. And, of course, I'll be on his right hand. Me, I'll be the captain. You know, that's what they were looking for and expecting. And Jesus told a parable to illustrate, no, that's not going to happen. There's going to be a delay in setting up the kingdom because something's got to happen first. Jesus has to die on the cross first. And then, God, there's going to be a period of time, we call it the church age, that we live in currently. This is the period of delay in which God is allowing everyone who will come to, to Jesus and believe in him and be saved to come. Right? And thank goodness he waited until now. If he'd have come and set the kingdom up then, we wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't even, right? And so praise God that there is a delay. There, there is a church age. And so he tells the parable, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So what's he saying? The nobleman is Jesus in the parable, and he is leaving. And when he comes back, he'll set up the kingdom. But there'll be a delay. There's a time period in between so what does he expect here here's the question and it applies to us as well what does God expect what does Jesus expect of his disciples in that period of delay however long it is so far it's been 2,000 years I don't know if it's going to end tomorrow or 2,000 more I have no idea but the application is the same Jesus expects us to do something during that period of time. What is it? We have a stewardship. Christ has given his disciples, us, a stewardship to represent him while he's gone. And so he goes home with the story. He called ten of his, his slaves or servants, and that would be his representative of his disciples or us. And he gave them each... He gave them ten minas and said, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens, but the citizens of the country, rejected him. And of course, that happened in, in Jesus' account. These are the religious leaders, the nation, the establishment, rejected Jesus, just like in the story. And when he went, they sent a delegation to object and said, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, there's actually a real historical story that they would have identified with about, remember when Herod the Great, who was alive when Jesus was born and tried to, tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem? Well, he died shortly after that, and he left his kingdom to his son, Archelaus, I believe was his name, Archelaus. And Archelaus, though, because Rome controlled the Middle East, he had to go to Rome to be crowned, so to speak, by the Roman Senate. And the Jews in Jerusalem actually sent a delegation to object. And they literally said to Caesar, we don't want this guy <laughs> to rule over us. But because of the political situation, Caesar appointed Archelaus anyway. And when he came back, he rounded up a bunch of these guys and bumped them off, just like in the story. And so they knew the story. They could relate to it. So Jesus gave them each uh, minas, uh, 
And when he had come back, whenever that will be, verse 16, the first appeared to to the master and said, your mina has made ten minas. So they, they, they bore fruit. They produced fruit. They did something with it. They took the stewardship that, that Christ gave them and did something with it. They served him while he was gone. And so what does Jesus say or what does the master say? What we all hope to hear. Well done. Exactly. Well done, good servant. And because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said, same thing. And you're to be over five cities. Well done. And the, of course, there's, some, there's one guy here, and I personally think he stands for a believer too. A lot of people would call this guy like a carnal Christian or, some, or somebody who's a Christian, but their life just hadn't changed as much as it should. And he says, I was afraid uh, because you're an exacting man. You take up what you don't lay down and reap what you don't sow. And so I didn't do anything. <laughs> and so Jesus says, by your own words, I will judge you, you, you worthless servant. And did you really know that I'm exacting man? In other words, he's saying, you know that in right. I'm not an exacting man. I'm a gracious, merciful man. So you're completely wrong in your estimation of me. You could have done any little thing to make a little money off this, or bore a little fruit off this. And so from you, no reward. For you, no rewards is basically what he says. But the verse, jump down to verse 27. But these enemies, the people who rejected him, in this case, they stand for the establishment there in Jerusalem. He says, these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So, that's exactly what happened. The religious establishment rejected Jesus. And we know that in 70 AD, what happened? They revolted against Rome. There's just... One generation later, and, and Rome came and destroyed the city completely and wiped out the temple and all the people and all the buildings and everything in it. Now in verse 28, you see that Palm Sunday that we're all familiar with, we all celebrated since we were little kids, right? Uh, but you may not have realized exactly what was going on <laughs> And, and may, may not have seen uh, the uh, misconceptions, I might say, that, that, that I certainly had when I was a kid in this story. Uh, for instance, let me ask you, was this really, Palm Sunday, was it really a triumphal entry? Or was it a public presentation of the Messiah? Was it a great celebration uh, like it seemed to be initially? Or was it a tragedy? Was it a spontaneous happening? Did it just erupt? It was just completely spontaneous? Or was it planned and orchestrated by God? And was Jesus the conquering king that they wanted him to be? Or was he the suffering servant? So let's go through those real quick, the contrast there. And of course, as he's entering, you see in the story, uh, the answer 
partly to, to what I've been asking is, verse 30, Jesus tells, as they're coming over the Mount of Olives and going to enter the city, he says to his uh, disciples, go into the village opposite you, in which, in which as you enter, you will find a cult, a donkey's cult. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're do, untying it, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So this whole deal set up. Spontaneous? Not exactly. Zechariah 9.9, the prophet, like 500 years before, foretold that when the Messiah comes, he will enter Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. Humble and mounted on a donkey. How'd that guy know? How did Jesus know that that colt would be in there and that the guy would give it up? I think it was planned and orchestrated by God. I think God knew exactly the exact time he gave to the prophet Daniel down to the very day Daniel predicted when Jesus would enter the city there in Daniel 9. He predicted how he would enter in Zechariah on the donkey. And he even predicted what the crowd would say. Psalm 118, David, in, in verse 38, what would the crowd, what would they say as he came down the Mount of Olives on the donkey? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The prophets even foretold what the crowd would say. So, Spontaneous? Hardly. Perfectly planned, orchestrated by the sovereign God who put this whole thing together, who decreed that this would happen. And so, as he's coming down the hill, the, the whole crowd, hundreds of thousands, and again, spontaneous, what were those crowds? Where'd they come from? Jesus had been to all the other Passovers. They'd never come out on the road like that to him before. Why'd they come out that day? Why this day? Well, first of all, it's the perfect time for him to come into the city like this. Why? Because Passover, all the Jews in the Mediterranean world were, were uh, required to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the city would be filled. Josephus said there was like a million extra people in the area on Passover for the big Passover festivities and so it was a perfect time for Jesus to come to get the biggest crowds in addition to that we see in John chapter 11 and 12 you have this awesome miracle in John 11 of the raising of Lazarus this guy who's a well-known figure lives just at least in the suburb there of Bethany just outside Jerusalem and all the Jews in Jerusalem were at his funeral and wake and they beheld, they saw Jesus raise this guy from the dead, Lazarus from the dead, after four days. It blew their mind. And they went back into Jerusalem. This is about two weeks before Palm Sunday. And they told everybody, the whole city was abuzz. And in John chapter 12, John says, that's why the crowd was out there. Because Lazarus himself was in the city testifying to what Jesus had done and that Jesus was coming. And so the crowds all went out to see who had done this incredible miracle and to welcome him as their king. So 
Spontaneous? No. Perfectly planned, orchestrated by God. Look what happens, though. Because one of the questions I said, great celebration or tragedy? Look at this. First of all, the Pharisees in verse 39 say to Jesus, wait a minute, these people are calling you king and Lord. Don't let them do that. They'll ruin our whole deal with the Romans. We can't have that. That's blasphemy. And so they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. There's going to be trouble if they keep doing that. What did Jesus say? He answered and said, I tell you, if these people become silent, the stones will cry out. What do you mean by that? Can you ever seen a talking stone? Well, I haven't. But. No, what he's talking about is this. The stones will cry out. He's saying what they are saying must be said. They are saying it because it is the will and the plan of God that it be said that he be presented to the city. It has to be said. It fulfills prophecy, right? And so that's what he means. And then verse 41, you go, okay, is Jesus going to join in the celebration? Is he going to be happy along with the crowd? No. Look what happens, verse 41. Jesus' response. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it. He wept. If they're, if they're happy and saying these wonderful things about him, why would he weep? Well, it, he explains it. Jesus says, here's why he was weeping, and he's talking to the whole city of Jerusalem. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace between God and man, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. You didn't get it. You didn't understand. You didn't believe. For the day shall come upon you now when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. That's his lament and his prophecy. And of course, as I said, that happened not too long after this. The Romans tore down the city completely. And why? And he tells them, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Messiah has visited, your Savior has come, and you did not recognize it. And that goes right along with the parable. Because they did not recognize him, they rejected him, there was a delay in the kingdom which of course we're living in right now and so you have the four perceptions the, that we talked about earlier the crowd this this is our political military messiah the crowd saying we're gonna make this guy king and run the Romans out of here and we'll be running our country for the first time in 600 years think about that they've been under tyranny of Gentile nations for 600 years and they see Jesus coming, this great miracle worker. They're going, this is the guy. The disciples that were with Jesus, as we saw, they believed that he was going to immediately set up the kingdom. And the religious leaders saw him as a threat to their power and money. And what did Jesus see? 
how much he loved the people and lamented his rejection. He was weeping over them. And so you see, uh, you know, I was, I was looking, <laughs> thinking about the Zacchaeus story, going back to that, a sinner coming to Christ, which is why he came. And I saw a quote recently by Mark Twain. He said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Think about that for a minute. That's pretty profound. I don't think Mark knew <laughs> exactly what he was saying there, but it's, it's really true. The day you're born, the day you found out why, what, what your life is really about. And I remembered, uh, I, don't, I don't know why this came to me, but remember years ago when Ross Pro ran for president and he had, uh, his vice president was going to be James Stockdale, a very uh, advanced man in years. And they had that debate. And when Stockdale came on and it was his term to, to, uh, time to speak, Stockdale says, who am I and why am I here? And there was a pause. Remember that? He said, who am I and why am I here? And then he, then he was silent. And, of course, everybody was thinking, this poor guy doesn't know. Remember? Exactly. That's the big question of life, isn't it? And, you know, just like it appeared, Stockdale was really asking that question as a, he was going to present, you know, why he was there and what he was doing. But the truth is, most people don't know the why. They don't know why they're here. They just go through life, you know, from one thing to another, and they have no idea why they were created or what their purpose is. So that's a big question. Who am I and why am I here? And you see in the story of Zacchaeus, he found out. He found out why. He experienced both of the big days. The rich guy in the, in the story before did not. So you see both a positive and negative example of why Jesus came and what he came to do. So the real Jesus didn't come to, you know, to bring worldly freedom from the tyranny of Rome like the like they wanted him there at that time. The real Jesus came to offer freedom from the tyranny of sin. That's why he came. That's why he was sacrificed, to atone for sin. The real Jesus uh, didn't come to give us wealth and good health and all the stuff we think we need. He came to solve our real problems, sin and death. And he solved those problems. Nobody else could but him. But, of course, people want a God of their own choosing, but God has given us something far better, redemption. He's bought us back with the precious blood of Christ. And so everyone was, was looking for the kingdom. We're looking for it now. But for Jesus, the cross had to come before the kingdom. The cross had to come first, and he knew that. So what should the application be for us today? How should we respond to that? Here we are now as believers in Christ. And I think uh, I saw this quote from A.W. Tozer. I think this is expresses it well, our application. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian on the throne, until he puts himself and his selfish desires on the cross. So initially, we're on our own throne. 
We're running the show until we put himself and his selfish desires on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains himself on the throne. So put your old self on the cross and live your life for Christ. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these wonderful stories. At the beginning of the Passion Week, and uh, Luke did such a great job of setting it up for us, and now we, we understand better about who Jesus is and why he came and what he, what he was going to accomplish and why he told these parables. Lord, thank you. And I, and I just pray that as we study the Passion Week in the next uh, two weeks, you would illuminate these stories for us and we'll have a whole new perception of Jesus in our life and, and we dedicate ourselves to him and live for him. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.